Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, looking this morning at the subject matter, being a godly mate. Now, folks, remember what I told you last week. Uh, We only started the book of 1 Peter last week. And next week, we'll be jumping back towards uh, chapter 1, picking up in verse 6 of chapter 1. But as I mentioned last week, I wanted to fast forward for this Sunday, the Sunday before uh, Valentine's Day, and preach on the marriage relationship. Now, there's a lot in this passage that uh, is, is going to maybe surprise you a little bit. Some great principles and application uh, having to do with the marriage relationship in a broader context of what Peter is writing uh, to his readers about. But uh, we will jump back to chapter 1 next week. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Being a godly mate, beginning there in verse 1, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Father, we thank you so much for our families, for our spouses. And God, I pray that in the church that we would have marriages that would give great honor and glory to the the name of Christ. And that as unbelievers see our Christian witness and the way we conduct ourselves, that they would be drawn to our faith in Jesus. So God, help us to be witnesses in all ways, in our work, in our relationships, not just our church life, but Lord, as we mingle with people in the world, may we point them to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. In the year 397 A.D., an aging saint in the Christian faith wrote what would become one of the most compelling autobiographies ever written. The book was finally published and he titled it, The Confessions of St. Augustine. Now, within the pages of the book is a moving tribute that Augustine gives to his mother, Monica, on the influence that she had in bringing her unbelieving husband, Patricius, to personal faith in Jesus Christ. 
Augustine described his mother's role with these words. She served her husband as her master and did all that she could to win him for you. Speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Folks, one could say that Augustine's mother received the full outcome of what Peter promised back in verse 12 of chapter 2 when he wrote, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As I mentioned earlier, on this Sunday before Valentine's Day, I want to jump forward to this text having to do with husbands and wives. But let me say this. It would be a huge mistake to think that our passage today is nothing more than a manual on Christian marriages. Tragically, that is how this text is most often preached. And so oftentimes we don't take into consideration the larger context of what Peter is saying here. This passage falls within a larger context in the letter of 1 Peter. He's writing to believers who are undergoing suffering. They are living in a world that is against their faith in Jesus Christ and they are the minority. And so many of their co-workers, so many of the people they rub shoulders with every day in society do not understand their faith in Jesus Christ and they are turning on the believers and the believers were suffering. Now we saw last week who Peter is writing to. They were Gentile believers for the most part. And they were scattered all over the country that was known as Asia Minor back then. They were all over the place, all throughout that country. And again, they were in the minority and they were being opposed and persecuted for their faith. And so Peter writes to tell Christians how they need to survive in a society like that. But not only how they need to survive, but how they can be the best possible witnesses for Christ. If we were to go back through and pick up on some of the highlights, we would see that Peter told them that they needed to respect and honor all of the governing authorities. There would have been governing authorities back then that everybody did not agree with. Many of those governing authorities that took some pretty hostile stances against Christianity. But even in that context, Peter says that they needed to honor the king and they needed to respect all of their leaders. In fact, he goes on to say that they needed to show proper respect and honor to everyone. They're to live their lives in such a way that the unbelieving society will not have any legitimate ammunition whatsoever to use against them as far as accusations are concerned. 
Now this passage falls within a unit that begins back at verse 11 in chapter 2. Let's go back and read verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This passage on marriage is a microcosm, if you will, of Peter's entire instruction. And that's why the instruction to the ladies here is so much longer than it is to the husbands. Now folks, if all these passages, if all these verses were meant to be was a marriage manual and nothing more, I could see why women might cry foul that their instruction is about six times longer than that given to the men. But again, the point is that the marriage relationship is a microcosm of the overall instruction that he's giving here in these five chapters. The church as a whole may find itself in a situation where it's faced with unbelievers and it's being attacked. And likewise, the wife might find herself in a marriage to an unbelieving husband. And he may not be treating her very well. And so what was happening to the women was an analogy of what was happening to the church in society as a whole. And so just as Peter is giving the church instruction how to respond when they're going up against an unbelieving culture, so the wife is being given instruction likewise in how she should respond to a husband who opposes her faith. Now I want you to listen to what Dr. Karen Job says in her commentary about this. She says, and I quote, How short-sighted it is to use this passage as if it were a marriage manual simply addressing the relationship between husbands and wives. And how ironic it is that the words that first century slaves and wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. When read within its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation within the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan. And so the point here is not simply how to be in a better Christian marriage. The point is how a mate who is married to an unbeliever can be the best possible witness for Christ. And the overall emphasis is that believers in general would conduct themselves in such a way to silence all of their critics. Now what we're going to see in this passage today is the validity of the old saying, actions speak louder than words. Now he's not saying that we're not to use words. In fact, down in verse 15 of chapter 3, he's actually going to say that we're to be prepared with our words. We're to be ready to give a defense of our faith in Christ. But folks, words if they're going to have their intended power and influence, they've got to be based upon actions. 
First of all this morning, I want you to see the instruction to the wife. Again, verses 1 to 5, instruction to the wife. And let me set the table here for a moment. We know that the Bible says that a Christian is not supposed to marry an unbeliever. If a Christian marries an unbeliever, that means that they have become unequally yoked. And the Bible says that in marriage that we're not to be unequally yoked. But I want you to think of what was going on in Peter's day. The gospel was new. It had not been very long since the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church has just recently started carrying out the great commission and going to all the world and preaching the gospel. And that meant that there would be some couples who would hear the gospel and maybe one of them would respond to the gospel and the other would not. It's just like today. Today, a husband and wife may go to church. Both of them are lost. They're not unequally yoked because they're both lost. They go to a church service. Maybe they go to an evangelistic crusade. They hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And let's say, for example, the wife responds and she comes to faith in Jesus Christ, but her husband's heart is hard and he doesn't respond to the gospel. They walk out of church. They walked in and they were not unequally yoked. They walk out of the church and now they're unequally yoked because she He's a believer and he's not. Well, what's she supposed to do now? Is she supposed to divorce her husband? I mean, after all, she's going to find some Christian men at church who are going to treat ladies a whole lot better. And maybe her husband's not treating her very well. So does she dump her husband and find a single Christian man at church and marry him so she won't be unequally yoked? No. The Bible addresses all this. Let me ask you to turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's begin reading together in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 10. Paul says there, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace." For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, if she's not to dump the guy, does she rebel against him? 
After all, she's under a higher authority now. She's under the authority of Jesus Christ. And her mindset is going to be on kingdom's purposes while her husband's mindset is still on the things of the world. And so is she to be at odds with him and everything? Is she to fight him in everything and be against him? No. Notice what Peter is saying here. She is still to respect him and respect his place of leadership in the home. Look at what Peter says, first of all, in verse 1 about this. He gives us an emphasis on biblical submission. An emphasis on biblical submission. Again, ladies, Peter has been talking about Christian submission at a bunch of different levels. I don't want you to think he has just now started talking about submission when he comes to you. He's been talking about it at different levels. I realize that the word submission today is a word that we hate. The word submission incorrectly communicates to us weakness or inferiority. Doesn't mean that at all. And again, he's just told us that we are to live in submission to the governing authorities unless they tell us to disobey God to whom we have a higher allegiance. He's told us that we're to live in submission to those ranked higher than us in the workforce. Our boss is not better than us. They just have a higher position than us. And so we're to respect that. Now he moves into the home setting and he continues by using the very same word. The Christian wife is not to leave her unbelieving husband and she is not to rebel against his place of leadership in the home. Ephesians 5:23 says for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior. God has given the husband headship in the home. That doesn't mean he deserves it. He doesn't. It doesn't mean he's earned it. It simply means that God has assigned different functions in the home to two people who are equals. Equal in essence, equal in creation, equal in nature, but they have different functions, different roles in the home. By the way, Paul talks to the Corinthians about this very same thing and he applies it to the members of the Godhead, the Trinity. Paul says that the head of the wife is the man, the head of the man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. The members of the Godhead, the Trinity, coexist in equality, but the Bible points out that Christ is in submission to the Father. And so the next time anybody wants to paint the word submission with such a negative stroke, it would do us well to remember that even Christ submitted himself to the Father while being equal with the Father at the same time. Now... That headship of the man is supposed to be carried out with agape love. Paul is writing to Christian couples and he makes that point in Ephesians 5.25. He says, husbands, 
Love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He's just told the wife in Ephesians 5, same thing Peter's saying here, the husband's the head, but he tells the husband, your role, your role of leadership and headship in the home is to be carried out in agape love. Agape love was the highest form of love, a self-giving, self-sacrificing type of love. That's how husbands are to carry out their leadership. But I want you to notice what Peter is doing here. Peter is giving the same instruction but a little different twist to it. You see, Paul is writing to Christian husbands and Christian wives. Peter is writing to a wife who has a non-Christian husband. And he's saying that even though your husband is an unbeliever, you are still to respect his place of leadership and so you need to be submissive and respectful to him so even if he does not obey the word he is going to be won over to the Lord by your conduct so see ladies what he's saying is your conduct is to have an evangelistic tone about it your mission field if you are married to a to a non-christian husband Your first mission field is your marriage and your conduct as a Christian lady in the home is to be a witness to him of Christ. Hopefully an unbelieving husband is going to be able to say about his Christian wife, I don't know what it is about her since she got saved, but man, she has become a different woman. There must really be something to this Christianity thing. I need to check it out. I need to be more like her. That's the type of effect the wife's conduct is to have. Listen again to what Dr. Karen Jobes writes concerning all this. She says, why would a wife's conversion likely provoke antagonism from her husband? In Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. If this expectation is applied to a Christian wife, it might result in trouble for several reasons. First, the very fact that a woman would adopt any religion other than her husband's violated the Greco-Roman ideal of an orderly home. Because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent upon religious forces... Disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family but to society. Christians were frequently blamed as the cause of public calamity because they introduced a new God upsetting the religious status quo of the empire. She goes on, secondly, the husband and society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus Christ as rebellion, especially if she worshiped Christ exclusively. If the wife persisted in her new religion to the extent that others outside the household learned of it, the husband would also feel embarrassment and suffer criticism for not properly managing his household. This could seriously damage his social standing, even to the point of disqualifying him for certain honors and offices. And so what Peter is saying here to wives is ultimately for the sake of evangelism, again, that the husband might eventually 
be one to Christ. And the larger context. The church as a whole may be in society under the same type of persecution as this lady is. And so what he's saying to this lady in her marriage, again, parallels the church in an unbelieving society. That we as the church in the body of Christ, not just a, a believing wife with her unbelieving husband, but in the church as we serve Christ in a world that is against Christ, that we would use every opportunity when it comes to our conduct to be a witness of our faith in Christ. Now secondly about this same point I want us to see also an emphasis on inner beauty. He's not only talking to the wives about biblical submission but inner beauty. Now I want you to notice what Peter is not saying. He, he says in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. Some translations plug in the word merely external to point out or to emphasize what Peter is saying. Do not let your adorning be merely external. The braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God sight is very precious now notice what Peter is not saying he's not saying ladies you've got to abstain altogether from wearing jewelry or makeup or nice clothes if he were arguing for abstinence here you would also have to carry it forward to say he, he would also be arguing for abstinence of clothing because he's including the three together. He's talking about makeup. Uh, he's talking about uh, hair, jewelry, and clothing. So there are some groups who say he, he's arguing abstinence in makeup and jewelry. But they're not understanding what he's saying here. He's not saying abstinence at all. He's simply saying moderation. Moderation. Ladies... Your life is not to revolve around the makeup you wear, the jewelry, the clothing you go out and buy. You are created for higher purposes. You are created for a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's where your emphasis is to be. We need to understand that women in Peter's day, just like some women today, gave way too much uh, emphasis to the externals. We think this is a word that is just for 2017. It was true back then as well because, see, there are so many things in the first century world that women were not allowed to do. Their, their world was narrowed in about what kind of public roles they could have and so forth. And so given the fact that there were a lot of things that ancient women could not do, they started, many of them started pouring all of their attention into their looks, their makeup and their jewelry and their hairdo and their clothing, all these sorts of things. And they got their life, the focus of their life, out of whack. I think of the story about the woman, she and her husband were working in their garden one Saturday morning. And both of them looked a mess. They were sweaty, 
They had on their old clothes. They were dirty. And their new neighbors moved in next door, and they met them across the fence. And being their new neighbors, they introduced them over for dinner that night. Well, as soon as they got done with the garden, the wife rushed out. She got her hair done. She got her hair colored and styled. She got her some new jewelry, uh, uh, got her a new dress. She got home. She squeezed into her girdle. She put on her false eyelashes. She put her makeup on. She did her hair. She, when she finally got ready, getting, uh, getting prepared for the evening, she looked with a look of satisfaction in the mirror, and she said to her husband, huh, Tonight they're going to see the real me. <laughs> but again, that's not new today. The ancient women were very often attentive on an obsessive level with their outside appearance. And also in some ancient circles, according to Philo, for a woman to leave home with excessive makeup and jewelry on was seen that she was on the prowl. She had sexual seduction in mind. And so Peter wants Christian women to stay away from all appearances that in his world would have communicated immorality. Again, his point is not abstinence, but rather moderation and in good taste in external things while giving your attention to a different emphasis altogether. He wants women to concentrate on the inner person. Ladies, I think there may be two good applications for these verses today. First of all, it would be for Christian women to dress in such a way that no one would ever mistake your motives. You can dress and look nicely and professionally and by decent standards of 2017 without looking cheap or immoral. And secondly, and most importantly, whatever time you spend taking care of the looks of the body, you need to give adequate time to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. If you get up every day and you spend an hour and a half, two hours getting ready for work and, and included in that getting ready, maybe time at the gym and, and you're doing all this stuff in the course of a day to take care of externals and maybe you're only in prayer and the Word of God for five or ten minutes a day, then that ought to be a testimony to you that your priorities are out of balance. Ladies, do you spend too much time on the outside? while not spending enough time growing in your relationship with Christ. His counsel here to Christian women assumes that regeneration and conversion has intruded into this area of your life in a very godly and beneficial way. So ladies, work on having a godly character. Don't be combative with your husband. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. He says, this is what God commends. Not only does God commend this, but I want you to notice it's even more intensive than that. It's not only just kind of okay with God, but he says this is very precious in the sight of God. 
Now I want you to notice the example he holds up here, Sarah. Let's begin reading in verse 5. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, little L, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He's holding Sarah up as an example, and I want to say that there is more to this example than first meets the eye. Sarah ended up submitting to the flawed leadership of her husband, even calling him Lord. Now, Peter may not simply be quoting from Genesis here, but in all likelihood, he is also quoting from a book in Jewish wisdom literature known as the Testament of Abraham. It was a pseudepigraphal book, a book that was attributed to Abraham, but Abraham didn't write it. But in the testament of Abraham, along with Genesis 18, Sarah calls him Lord. But, but don't miss the nuances of what's going on here. Where was Abraham? Where were Abraham and Sarah? They were in a foreign land. Abraham had been called from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the promised land and God was going to build a new nation out of him. And he trusted God enough to leave Ur, to leave his father's family and go to this new land. But once he got in the new land, you remember what happened? A famine hit the land. And so what did he do? He had trusted God to get him to Canaan, but once he got to Canaan, he fled down to Egypt because of the famine. Now, do you remember what he did in Egypt? What did he tell Sarah? They came up with this little half lie, didn't they? Kind of a little white lie because she was his half-sister. But remember, remember what he said? You need to tell them that you are my sister so that it will go well with me in the land. Now, ladies, let me ask you a question. Where are you? You're in a foreign land. And that's Peter's whole point in this book. You and I as believers are sojourners here. This world is not our home. We're looking for that place, who, uh, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're, we're citizens of heaven while being citizens of earth too. So we're like foreigners in this land, even as Adam, uh, even as Abraham and Sarah were foreigners down in Egypt. Now in a foreign land, again, what did Abraham do? Abraham did not express the best of character by telling Sarah to do what he told her to do. So ladies in a foreign world in In a foreign land, in this world, your husband might be like Abraham, flawed and disobedient to the word. You're in a foreign land. And in this foreign land, your husband might be flawed and disobedient to the word. But Sarah was obedient to God's word even though her husband was not. She serves as your example. Now, let's move on to instructions to the husband. Sorry, ladies, I know, I know yours, you get six verses, the husband only gets one verse, okay? I'm just dealing with it as it's written, okay? Going verse by verse. 
So instruction to the husband, likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now just as I spent a moment while ago going over the context with the ladies, I want to do the same here. In the pagan world back then, women could be treated as property and often they were. Women did not have rights in in Peter's world, in the first century world. Interestingly enough, wherever Christianity has gone across the globe today, the role of women has been uplifted and improved. A pagan man in Peter's day would be harsh on his wife. In fact, all of his friends and his business associates would have expected him to be harsh with his wife and his kids. He would have been expected to rule his wife and his kids with an iron fist. And because of his superior strength, he might be tempted to do so. Folks, in the ancient world, a husband could even take the life of his wife or his child for almost no reason whatsoever. If you think about extreme Islamic cultures today where a man can kill his wife and daughter and it simply gets labeled as an honor killing or something of that nature, that's probably pretty close to how it was in the ancient world. A wife was a man's property no more. And so what Peter is about to write to the men, men I want you to understand something, though his words to us are fewer in number, probably given the situation of the day, his words to us are even more revolutionary to the six verses that he's just given to the ladies. What's he tell men? First of all, dwell with your wife in an understanding way. Try to see her perspective. Try to understand her challenges. Understand her desires and goals and frustrations. And in contrast to how the pagan men might be abusive, Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, almost all commentators key in on the fact that the words uh, weaker vessel here suggest that she is only weaker physically. That's all it means. And doctors tell us that today a woman's muscle mass is not as dense as a man's. A woman's bone structure is not as large. By and large, men are the stronger sex. Now, I've seen some exceptions to that. I've seen a few ladies I wouldn't want to tangle with. I remember sitting at a doctor's... I remember sitting in a doctor's office one day, and I tell you what, in that doctor's office with, with her children was Mrs. Schwarzenegger. 
She had on her cowboy boots and blue jeans and a man's pocket t-shirt. She had big old muscles bulging out. I, I mean, she was a woman. She wasn't a she wasn't a she man or whatever you'd want to call. I mean, she was a woman, but man, she was bulked up and she was mean to those kids. And anytime she would holler at those kids and yell at them, every man in that waiting room would shake with fear because I mean. <laughs> She could have body slammed any of us. <laughs> but by and large, that's not how ladies are. Now again, spiritually, it's not talking about spiritually weaker. Some of the spiritual giants in churches are women. It's not talking about intellectually because studies show us how women are typically the better students, uh, smarter and more academic. It's not talking about uh, mental capacity or spiritual ability. It's simply talking about she's weaker. And, and he's saying to men, to Christian men, he's saying you've come out of this culture where you and your friends abused your wife to get what you wanted. But as a man of God now, you're not to do that. You're not to do that. For a man who professes faith in Jesus Christ, you need to live with your wife in an understanding way and you need to treat her honorably because she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is created in the image of God no less than you are. Folks, human worth and dignity goes back to the creation narratives in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1.26 where God said, Let us make man in our image. And it says, Male and female, he created man in his image. He created men and women both in his image. That's where human worth and dignity comes from. We're all created equal in God's sight. Different roles, different functions maybe in society, but created equally. And so as a Christian man looks at his wife, he is to look upon his wife as somebody who is the very image bearer of God. Created in God's image no less than he himself is. And so he's to be understanding towards her. And he's to give her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Going back to Ephesians 5 that I mentioned a moment ago. We see in Ephesians 5 how Christ treated the church. Christ died for us. Everything Christ did, he did for us. He did not humiliate his church. He did not embarrass the church. How inappropriate for a Christian man to humiliate or embarrass his wife or to try to make her feel uh, low or unlovely or inferior. Men, we are to treat ladies with respect and honor. And your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. Jesus left the ivory palaces of heaven to come to this earth and die for her. He died on the cross for her. He rose from the grave for her. It, the same things he did for you, he did for her. Here again, I can't help but make comparisons between ancient pagan religions and modern day Islam. In Islam today, even today, a woman is nothing. Nothing. 
It's all aimed at men getting to paradise and getting their 70 virgins. Just think about the superior position that Christianity gives to women. You know what really surprises me? It really surprises me that there are not more female voices in the world who are crying out louder in favor of Christianity. Because again, when you see how Christianity treats women as opposed to Islam and other religions, you would think there would be more emphasis today on Christianity. A woman is to be treated with honor because she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. And if all of that is not enough, men look at what he does for us next. He tells us to heed the warning. Heed the warning. Look at what he says. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now think about that. Probably, probably two layers of instruction here. On the most basic level, if a man's not treating his wife right, the two of them are not going to be praying together as they might otherwise so their prayers together are going to be hindered but men I think it's even saying more than that I think he's saying even you and your prayers on your own if you're not treating your wife right it's going to be like your prayers are going up to the ceiling and hitting the ceiling bouncing back down they're not even going to reach the ears of God the book of James talks about some situations where God is not going to hear our prayers. In James 4 he says, if we don't pray, God's not going to answer our prayers because we've not even asked. But then sometimes we pray with wrong motives. We, we ask for selfish stuff. God's not going to hear those prayers. Thirdly, James says, there are times God's not going to answer our prayers because we're fighting with one another. We're warring with one another. I think Peter would say to men here, there, there's a fourth thing we could add to James 4 when God is not going to hear prayers. And it's when men are not treating their wives with honor and respect and dignity. Men, when you go before God with your prayer list and you're praying for things, do you want God to hear and answer your prayers? Of course you do. You wouldn't even be praying otherwise. You need to stop. When you're in your devotional time, you need to stop and back up and maybe make sure, first of all, you've been treating your wife with honor. And if that's not in order, maybe you need to put your Bible down and your, your prayer intercession list down and you need to go see your wife and get things right with her and then come back and offer your prayers. So again, his words to men might be brief here, but these words to men would have been so revolutionary, so unlike anything the pagan men in Peter's culture knew anything about. Because all they saw was strength and domineering and putting a brick on her head. And Peter is saying to Christian men, no, you lift her up. 
and you honor her. This Sunday before Valentine's Day, I wonder if there's a husband or a wife here this morning who realizes that the greatest gift you could give your spouse is coming to Christ. Maybe you're the unbeliever in the relationship and God's been convicting you of that lately. You need to come to Christ. Greatest gift you could give your family, greatest gift you could give your mate. I'll be here to pray with you. Perhaps some in here this morning have an unbelieving mate and Peter's words strike a chord in your heart. You need to pray for your mate and also you need to be that example that he's talking about in these verses because at times words may drive your mate further away from the Lord. But you know what? It's going to be hard for your husband or wife to argue with a changed life when they see your changed life. Pray for your mate and be that example to them that you know you need to to be. Pray for your spouse. Even if they don't accept your faith, you cannot stop them. Or or they cannot stop you, rather, from you praying for them. Chase them in prayer when you can't do anything else. I wonder if somebody today needs to seek forgiveness and cleansing from the Lord for the way that you have treated your mate. Ask God to forgive you and ask them to forgive you. Finally, I want to say a word to parents and grandparents. Some of us have kids that are right on the verge, that age, right on the verge of making one of the most important decisions they'll ever make, and that is who they are going to choose to be their spouse parents and grandparents we don't need to only be praying about our own marriages but we need to be praying for our children that our children too would have God honoring marriages amen